This time not from the EPR Creation Studio, but rather from the road, since I've had to, uh, I've been on the road for a while, had a research trip to make uh, this week, been working on a new project and uh, trying to get that pretty far along, but still need to get some stuff recorded. Uh, wasn't able to do a full film, film review session this week, but was ba- able to go back over some things up more closely. This is Unconquered with Doc Staples, as always. I'm Doc Staples, and the audio obviously won't sound exactly the same as usual, so pardon any uh, any differences from the usual uh, higher quality setup, but uh, we're going to do the best we can on the road here. Uh, also, I should note, uh, I've had some Spotify folks, uh, some folks who listen on Spotify let me know that there have been some times where, uh, for whatever reason, the feed when it's coming into Spotify, sometimes there's a hiccup and it winds up going into a like monster voice or whatever as it tries to layer multiple things over it. I'm not sure exactly why that's happening. I've got to investigate that with Spotify and with uh, with my host as well on this and try to get to the bottom of why that's happening and see if we can get it fixed. If that does happen to you, then I suggest re-downloading it and seeing if that improves things. But uh, that's about as much as we can do on that for right now because it's not in my hands to fix. All right. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing you the best of internet marketing and website development for an affordable price by Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by Justin Galloway from Benchmark Mortgage. Get in touch with these folks if you can use their services. Information's all in the show notes. Look, if they're advertising on the Unconquered podcast, first of all, let them know you heard about them from here. But uh, you can you can trust that these these folks, these good folks, are going to be they're going to get you the absolute best. They're going to give you their absolute best. Uh, I wouldn't stand behind them if I didn't think that. All right, let's get to it. And actually, what I'm doing on this, I didn't think when I was going through that there was honestly a whole lot to revise in terms of the takeaways from the Virginia Tech game. Uh, so I'm not going to spend too much time on on second thoughts on that game because there's just not a whole lot to rethink. I think, uh, by and large, it was what it looked to be the first time through, and that was a Florida State team that had an overwhelming talent advantage and a Virginia Tech team that, that kept things a little closer than it should have been through, through that game. There were a few just hiccups from Florida State at different points. And also some, some calls that went against FSU uh, a couple times that helped extend a, a drive, that prevented another drive from, from extending, and then another drive from extending for Florida State, so helped keep things a little bit closer uh, in, in that point. Or at that point in the game, and then uh, basically FSU being able to uh, to block Virginia Tech up front a lot better than they've been able to handle some of the recent opponents was was the biggest factor. Um, I, I do still have some concerns, but we'll we'll get to those in the mailbag. Uh, I just went through and curated some of those questions, so I know what we're going to get to. So that's really what I'm going to do here. I'm going to go ahead and get to the mailbag, and uh, we'll we'll go ahead and start in just a moment. Got to pay the bills first. So the first question here is from, got to pull this up, I know that's not the best. All right, from Ashley Short, what's better, 
Miami not taking a knee or Florida throwing a shoe 20 yards down the field against LSU? That's a great question. Um, My answer to that is Miami by a mile, or at least by every inch that that shoe flew down the field. Miami by a lot, just because, I mean, that's just, the shoe thing was stupid and, and, you know, illustrated a bit of a, a lack of discipline on the field or whatever, but that not taking a knee with 36 seconds left is, like, that's a whole different level of stupid in that, in that case that just, yeah, I, I think when, when, you're, when your rival reaches that level of stupidity, it's hard to, to get anything a whole lot better than that. All right, next one is from JZRL. I don't really know what that all means, but he says, I have a philosophical or psychological question. Does Norvell's messaging of response work against a mentality of dominance? We know this team is at its best when their backs are against the wall, responding when things don't go their way. But then they have lapses in concentration once they do respond and get a lead on teams. This, is an FS, this FSU team plays like they know they're dominant when they turn it on, but they still haven't turned the light on and kept it on. They go up 22 to nothing on Virginia Tech, and then when the score is 22 to 17, they turn the light on again and flex the dominance. Do we just accept that this is what this team is? That is a great question. Um, well, first of all, I don't think we have a choice but to accept that this is that that whatever the team is is what it's going to be, because none of us are. Well, I presume you know none of the none of the uh, the coaches or, or or players are actually listening, but I'll just presume none of us are actually in that locker room or on that field. So we really don't have a choice but to accept whatever the team is or what it's going to be this year. But in the spirit of the question. Um, I don't think that that's what this team, that that's sort of the maximum of what this team can be or will be this season. And I don't think that the emphasis on response works against the idea of dominance. I mean, we've seen Mike Norvell teams dominate before. I mean, he preached dominance last year, and that's a team that ran off a string of 30-plus point victories against overwhelmed, outmanned teams last year. So I don't think that's it. I do think that that this team still has to find its identity and figure out who they're going to be and what they are in order to to really play at their maximum, you know, to play at the level that they were able to play in the first quarter against, against Virginia Tech, for example, and sustain that longer. I think some of that is that. I also think one of the factors here is Florida State plays an awful lot of players, and they play them early and often. So I, I, I think one of the things that, that needs to be considered here is some of the inconsistency, I do think, is the result of just a lot of different players and different combinations of players being on the field and not entirely gelling together or some, sometimes young players making mistakes, sometimes you know just things not being entirely in sync with the guy next to you. And that's something that happens when you, when you do get a lot of rotation. Now, of course, the benefit is they are playing a lot of people, which means you, you typically are going to stay healthier. You typically have guys stay happier, although we, just, we did just see Winston Wright go ahead and decide to, to leave the team. And 
honestly, I'm not that surprised there. Um, you know, he's a guy that got passed up on the depth chart and then got passed up again when Ja'Kai Douglas came. And, you know, I can understand that it's really disappointing and frustrating for him as a player. And as a, as a person, you know, he's, he came to Tallahassee before last season expecting to be the guy. And then, you know, honestly, I don't think he would have been the guy even at that because I do think that, that uh, the tape suggested that Johnny Wilson was the best of the, of the guys when they brought them in. But, and that's, that's what I'd said at that time. But then, of course, the, the, the car accident changed everything so that he was no longer really able to contribute. And then by the time he started getting healthy, first of all, he's still not quite what he was before the injury. And secondly, even if he was what he was before the injury, he's not better than Johnny Wilson, Keon Coleman, or Jaheim Bell, and is not going to play a whole lot over those guys in those roles. You know, again, I'm thinking of Jaheim Bell really as the as the slot receiver in the way that they're, they're they're handling the offense, though he didn't play much this last week due to getting dinged up. So, yeah, but in any case, getting back to the main point, I think playing that many many players does help in terms of overall uh, satisfaction. You know, in terms of guys feeling like they're they're really playing like they should, make, making sure that they stay happy and you know a lot of mouth to, mouths to feed on this team and actually I do think one one place where they could rotate more is at the wide receiver position I think uh, I think that's a place where I'd like to see some of the other other guys get in there a little bit more once they do get up especially uh, and rotating a little bit but I do think they're they're trying to give uh, Johnny and Keon a little bit more in the way of reps but uh, but I do and trying to gain I think some more comfort with uh, and rhythm with Jordan Travis so I understand doing that but I, I think Playing, uh, you know, some of the guys that are second and third on the depth chart a little bit more there wouldn't wouldn't hurt. But again, that's going to impact how 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 in rhythm you can be. And you know, they played a lot of combinations on the offensive line, some by necessity, uh, due to to guys getting dinged up and injured. Uh, others just due to rotation, and you know that impacts how again, how much you gel or how fast you gel, how long it takes for guys to really get used to their roles and having that guy next to, uh, to you instead of that guy. Uh, and then on defense, you know, they're rotating six, seven defensive tackles. They're rotating four defensive ends and sometimes moving a defensive tackle out there. They're rotating four or five outside, or, uh, different linebackers, playing a bunch of defensive backs. And Sometimes you look out there and you're like, geez, like, why are they, why, what, what happened? Why did they allow that? Pl- oh, that's a freshman. Or, you know, also defensively, you know, they've, they've had some of those guys have not played. Uh, some of the, you look at losing Dent at safety was a, was a big loss and, and impacted some things there as well. So I think some of it is just personnel and figuring out, carving out roles, and I think against better teams, narrowing that, uh, that rotation a little bit. But I, I don't have a problem with playing that many players and rotating that many players against, you know, the Virginia Techs of the world or, that, or whatnot even earlier. I mean, they were rotating those guys in when they were up 14 or 15, I guess. Uh, and, you know, I think that's good for them. I think that's good for the team overall. I think they're going to continue to do that, but that does sometimes lead to just a little bit more inconsistency, and I think that's a factor. I think the other thing is that just they've not quite figured out, like I said, their their overall identity on both sides of the ball, and there's just 
a few hiccups there, and then just little execution things that they can clean up, and then that, that works forward. But trust me, Norvell is emphasizing dominance just as much as he's emphasizing response. You will hear him shout dominate, you know, these sorts of things. So uh, it's not something I'm worried about, but it is worth, worth bringing up and, and asking. Okay, the next question is from James. He says, some of the holes Benson had, I could have run through. Have we figured something out in the running game, or is VPI just uh, <clears throat> bad at run stopping? That's a good question again. Um, so I think it's a little bit of column A and a lot of column B. So I think looking at what – you go back and you watch it again. Virginia Tech had some real issues with fitting the run. The, the second level – and we talked about this in the preview – uh, those backers and those safeties had had some issues fitting the correct hole a variety of times over the course of the, of the season, and they had those same problems again. Uh, there were times where they were just, one guy got sealed inside and another guy's not quite in the proper gap, and it's just a wide open hole. And the thing about Benson is you get him moving forward with a, with a little bit of daylight where he doesn't have to, to make a lot of moves or go laterally in space, in order to find the daylight, and he's, that guy's, he might be the best running back in the country if you give him that, that space to start forward and, and with a little daylight. And they gave him more than a little. Once you get him in that open field and he's, he's got a head of steam, look out. And so a little bit of, a little bit of, the, of the problem, or a lot of, of, of Virginia Tech not being good at, at, run, at stopping the run against a quality run, uh, run game, but I do think that they, they found some things or they, they returned to some things that have been Mike Norvell staples in the past, uh, specifically the G play uh, where, you know, you, they, you pull. So there, there are a couple different ways that they, that they do it, but one of, the, one of the ways it's just basically outside zone, but instead of uh, everybody stepping, let's say it's outside zone right, instead of the right tackle and right guard trying to, step right and get the get those reach blocks against the the players that they're blocking it turns into a pin and pull where the uh the 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 right let's say the right tackle again the right tackle is actually pinning down on the defensive tackle on that side so the guard doesn't have to make that reach block and the tackle doesn't have to make the reach block on the end man because the guard is actually coming out and is going to go ahead and pull and get a better angle on that edge player. So it oftentimes results where you get a nice seam just between, just in that gap. So you're going to get the down block from the tackle, and then you're going to get the G pull, and the G is going to go ahead and kick that guy out. And sometimes he'll, you know, if they try to spill it, you just log him with the G. So either way, you either get the edge or you get a nice seam between the, between the, uh, the, the down block and the puller. And that's a play that, that Mike Norvell, that's one of, if anything, I would say that that play has been Norvell's most successful play going back all the way to Memphis. When, when Florida State or Memphis have gotten in, into, a, into a rut or gotten into you know, difficult situations, they, they've gone back to that play more than once and had a lot of success on that over the years. I'd, I'd be interested in pulling numbers in terms of their actual um, success rate on that particular play. I uh, wonder if that actually, if that's actually accessible. But, um, but in any case, 
they went back to that. And, and that, by the way, is one of those plays that Norvell really likes to run a lot against odd fronts. And the way that uh, Virginia Tech lined up at different points, it was almost an odd front look, even though they did have a, a fourth lineman. It was the way that they aligned was favorable to that. So some of that's just matchups in terms of what they're seeing up front to, to go to that. But that's, that's basically Norvell's odd front killer is to, is to use a lot of, of uh, G. And then, uh, and then they also made some adjustments with their counter where they, they pulled the center uh, rather than pulling the guard on, on a number of cases. So instead of pulling that backside guard and asking the center to block back on the, uh, on the three technique there, what they're doing on, uh, is they're just letting the, uh, the backside guard pivot. So he's going to take care of the three technique, and then the, the center is able to pull. And, you know, Maurice Smith is an, is an athletic enough center to do that. And Norvell did that some back in 20, what, 2018, back at Memphis, where he used his center some pulling there, and that was really useful to have an athletic center. Uh, and, and Smith, when he's, when he's healthy, is athletic enough to do that. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw more of that moving forward with just the way that teams have played FSU in, in, against the counter, where they've really had that three technique chase that, uh, that guard, that pulling guard real, really hard and try to beat that center's block. And it's been a really tough block for them to get, and it's caused some, some stack up a little bit in the backfield. I wouldn't be surprised to see them do a little bit more CT and CH, you know, counter and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that is a little bit of, a, I think, a, a change that they made where they, they found something, uh, maybe worked on that a little bit more in the, in the buy. Uh, and I thought they, they handled their overall just outside zone uh, and inside zone series just a little bit better as well. So a little bit of, little bit of that and a lot of... Uh, Virginia Tech just not being very good running running a football. So or against against the run, I should say. So a little bit of both, but a lot of just Virginia Tech not being very good there. All right. Next question. That dude Bull asks. Curious. Do you think Jordan Travis is starting to get the bad habit of fading away on every throw? He looks so off balance. And then James also asked. Travis throwing off-platform or kind of backing out when releasing. On the one hand, if I get a big dude barreling down on me, I'm probably doing exactly that too, and maybe it avoids possibly catastrophic hits. And I've heard pro quarterbacks saying in the NFL many times you're not throwing from the classic posture, but is it a looming problem? Okay, so I'm going to lump those questions together. And, yeah, I think um, the first thing I want to emphasize is, so Dat Dude Bull, you said, uh, do you think – uh, Travis is starting to get the bad habit of fading away on every throw. My answer to that is no, because this is not uh, something that's starting. This is something that he's done for a while. And honestly, this is one of the things, and I've talked about this for a couple years now. Um, I'm frustrated when I watch them do drills because I see them actually I don't know whether this is something that they're actually coaching or whether it's just something that they're permitting in the drills in terms of, of allowing that kind of, of throwing motion. But I'm seeing more than just Jordan Travis doing it. Travis is the most exaggerated example, but th- I mean, this is something that's showing up in drills. I mean, you can go back to any of the drills from camp this year. You can go back to drills from camp last year. And you're, you're going to see the same kind of fading away and kind of slashing across the body motion in drills. 
And that, to me, is a, is a problem. Uh, is it something where, you know, he's getting the bad habit of fading away on every throw? No, he's not getting it. He's developed that habit, and it's a habit that has been, uh, that has been not only tolerated, but has been cultivated. And there's an old rule in coaching that you, you get what you tolerate, you get what you allow, and whether this is what they've actually been coaching or, you know, in terms of instruction, or it's just been something that they've been tolerating and allowing to happen in the drills for the last couple of years, this is, this is what it is. And like I said, they've been, this has been cultivated, and it's very frustrating to me as someone who has coached throwers a lot that I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a biomechanically sound way to throw the football. And the, the truth is, I mean, and, and again, I've been meaning to get a, I mean, I, told, I talked about this last year about doing a video where I explain this a little bit more as, a, as someone who's, who's coached throwers, uh, that biomechanically speaking, there are a couple flaws there that lead to stereotypical misses and, and inaccuracy. And I, I think this week, after this weekend's game, uh, I think I'm going to need to do that, do, to record that, because I'm getting more uh, questions about this. I'll go ahead and do a recording showing exactly how that works. But there's a combination of factors here, just in brief, that uh, that that all pair together to result in a, in less than optimal accuracy and also less than optimal velocity. And that is when you have the the front the lead hip open too early, so you're you're opening before you actually create the torque necessary, uh, and then get the weight sort of not, rather than working forward through the throw, working more to the side or back, and then you pair that with the arm coming down and across, and then you combine that with the arm not getting fully extended at the elbow and from the shoulder through the elbow all the way to the tips of the fingers, you end up with, you know, it's sort of a, a, a triad of, of bad things in terms of overall biomechanics that result that tend to result in balls that float a little bit, balls that will sail more more often than not. But you're going to get sort of up down uh, inaccuracies more than anything else. And every so often you'll get one that will that will um, kind of work down and work across to the thrower's non-throwing side in terms of those misses. So a right-hander is going to go to the left-handed side. You're going to wind up getting that kind of, uh, of miss. But mostly you're going to get balls that sail or you know, go to the dirt uh, because the, the sequencing has to be just right for it to be accurate, and you're not going to be able to drive the ball down the field the way that you could if you fully extend the arm. And again, it's very similar to you know, short-arming it. You know, when you see someone who shoots a basketball and they don't actually finish with the full extension of the arm through the elbow, but just a partial extension of the arm through the elbow and then just a little bit of the flick with the, uh, with the wrist, that's not as consistent as if you get the full extension through the elbow. And it's a very similar kind of flaw when you, when you see this with a thrower, and they're pairing that with the balance issues and some of those other things. So I do think that's one of the reasons that, that Jordan Travis has been, uh, has been less accurate overall as a thrower on some things than ideal, not just this year, but last year. There were times where he, he missed some very accessible throws just because, he, because the mechanics weren't, weren't 100% rock solid. That does not mean that Jordan Travis is not a very good quarterback. He's really, really good. But 
I'm criticizing from the standpoint of he could be even better with just a little bit cleaner mechanics on this. Okay, next question. Uh, this one is a little bit related. Dino Babers just said Jordan Travis would be the best quarterback Syracuse has played, but they just played Drake May. You've watched them both a lot. Is Travis really better than May? Well, the answer to that, in my opinion, is no. Um, and honestly, I mean, look, Travis is really, really good. He is one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And you look at the at, at a couple of the key reasons why. One is the, the threat that he presents with his legs is a huge factor. But the, the thing that he does best and the most important thing that Travis has brought to the table for Florida State is consistent decision-making. This is a guy who has not turned the ball over. He doesn't turn it over. And when you don't turn it over and you've got a lot of playmakers, that in itself is a huge deal. And then you combine that with him being a pretty darn good deep ball thrower and you've got a guy who can make big plays with both his arm and his legs and doesn't turn the ball over. That's a great combination. And that's why he's become a really quality quarterback. Is he, you know, typically makes the right decision, gets his team into the right spots, manages the game really well, and then does that as a guy who's a big play threat with both legs and arm. But Drake May is different, man. Drake May is, I mean, if you're putting the quarterbacks in a tier in tiers this, this year in terms of not just uh, NFL prospects. That's a whole different thing. I'm just talking about college here. If you're putting, putting quarterbacks in tiers, there's still one tier that's above all the others. And you're going to have Williams, Caleb Williams, and Drake May in that tier. You might put Michael Penix in there, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. Talk about a guy that uh, <laughs> Florida State decided to pass on. <laughs> but anyway, um, you might put Penix up there, but I don't think you do. I think it's, I think it's Caleb Williams and Drake May in a, in a tier by themselves there. And I'll be honest, if you put Drake May at quarterback at Florida State, I think, it's, I think Florida State becomes not just by a little, but by a lot, the national championship favorite. I, I think he's that good. And, you know, I, I think he's a future franchise quarterback in the NFL and you know, he's a guy that, not, that can make every throw and doesn't miss a whole lot. And, you know, as a thrower, he's, he's just a significantly more advanced player and more talented player than, than Travis is, just as a thrower in terms of making every throw. Now, Travis as a deep ball thrower is in the same, in the same league. He's a really good deep ball thrower. Um, but it's on the, other, on the other types of throws where I'm going I'm to give May the advantage and May, honestly, is about as good a runner on the, on the whole as, as Travis. He's just not quite as fast when you have to turn on the Jets. But May will get you, you know, 25, 30 yards at a, at, at a chunk once in a while and, you know, really moves well. Uh, and also is, is a guy that has managed to maximize what he's getting out of what I think is a pretty weak offensive line for North Carolina this year. And, you know, he's done this with a lot of pressure. I mean, he, he's another guy, both guys, super tough and willing to take contact. So, um, so yeah, I mean, this is not a knock on Travis, but I do think, uh, I do think May is, if not the second, if not the best, he, I think, is the second best quarterback in the country. And I think that, that, that set is a tier above everybody else. Now, Babers is doing what coaches do. And, you know, the next guy is even better than the guy we just played. Um, 
And Travis is so good that, you know, you could you can defend him making the statement. But uh, again, having watched both guys, you know, if I were staging a draft of, you know, of of guys to to at that position, if I were staging a quarterback draft in in college football for just any offense, you know, Drake Mays, if not the first, he's the second off the board. So yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think Babers is telling the truth there. Uh, other thing too is I don't think May's supporting cast is anywhere near as talented, near as good as what Florida State has. They're not as good on the offensive line. They're not as good at wide receiver. They're not nearly as good at, at running back, uh, and I don't think they're even as good at, at, at tight end, where which is maybe their strongest position uh, as a whole. They're a little deeper maybe, but. You know, Morlock and Bell, I think, are are at least as good as 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 North Carolina's tight ends. So I, I I think May's done. May has has a little bit less to work with, and you know, again, has put up crazy numbers this year. Anyway. All right, next one. This one's from Pensacola. Uh, curious to hear your take on a more favorable matchup for FSU if it comes to that in the ACC championship game. UNC or Louisville? I think either would be highly entertaining for a, for a casual fan. So my take on that is I would prefer, if I'm, if I'm Florida State, if I'm Mike Norvell, I absolutely prefer to play Louisville over, over North Carolina in that game. And the reason is real simple. If I can avoid playing a franchise quarterback who could absolutely go nuclear and you know get volcanic hot and put up 400 yards on just a series of ridiculous throws and, and escape the pocket and do all sorts of different things that just you can't defend, then I'm avoiding playing that guy. I think you're better than both teams. Uh, you know, I think, I think Florida State is the better team if they play either team. But between the two teams, if I'm Florida State, I feel a lot more comfortable that, that you can – reliably predict kind of the level of play you're going to get from Syracuse as opposed to the possibility that, you know, Drake may just goes unconscious and, you know, they score, they score enough points to stick with you. Now the, the flip side to that is I think Jeff Brom is one of the best uh, offensive minds in, in the country and he will scheme you up. He's going to get some guys open. He's going to find ways. I mean, he, you look at his record in, uh, in matchups against more highly ranked teams, he's kind of the upset king the last few years, whether at Purdue or this year at, at Louisville. I mean, he, he does find ways to, to basically be a real threat for upsets. So that, you know, if you're going to take the other angle, you know, you feel like you can probably scheme up uh, Gene Chizik and, and, and Mac Brown and, and all of them, you feel maybe more comfortable given your history. I mean, Mac Brown has never beaten Florida State. Uh, you, you feel maybe a little bit better about that one on that side, maybe. But if I'm thinking about that just in terms of the overall matchups, and that includes the coaching staffs, and I, I think North Carolina's offensive coaching staff this year is really is, is actually really good, uh, I would not want to play the possibility of Drake May because I think if you're, if you're North Carolina – Drake May, having that guy gives you a puncher's chance against anyone because it's possible that regardless of the fact that you're just giving up, that you can't block him or anything else, he's just getting the ball out so fast and so accurately that it doesn't matter. And they've got a couple with Tez Walker now being eligible. They've got a couple of game breakers outside and that can get scary. 
So you try to avoid that team if you can. Now, that doesn't mean that you favor, that you know, Florida State should, be, should fear either one of them or that I would favor, F, favor either one over FSU, but, but in answer to that question, that's how I'd take it. All right. Next one is from Jay Street. Whenever you do your full rewatch, you'll likely see that a lot of the lack of production on both sides of the ball in the second quarter spurred on by some just ridiculous officiating calls, most egregious being the personal foul call on Byron Turner on the AZ interception play and the phantom holding call on Roddick on JT's scramble for a first down. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> Going back and looking at some of these, um, that wasn't a hold on Roddick. Now, I understand why they called it. It's a, you know, it, there, there were some indicators that you often look for that were sort of marginally there. So oftentimes you're going to get that called. But yeah, that was not a good call. And then the roughing call, I mean, it just didn't look great. But I mean, it was basically an as he was throwing hit and you know, that's one I, he was, he was not high. I just think you don't call that, but at any rate, you had those. And then don't forget the, the pass interference call that was missed against Ja'Kai Douglas. You had another that was iffy. So yeah, there were definitely, this was, this was a game where normally bad calls kind of balance themselves out. This was one where I didn't think they did so much. And I, I do think it impacted the overall flow of the game at that stage. Um, so yeah, there's some truth to that. Nevertheless, I mean, even after that uh, interception was called back due to the, the due to the roughing, they still allowed Virginia Tech to just sort of march the ball down the field and gave up a gave up a bad gap. I mean, they they had a little stunt on, and uh, Peyton got greedy, looking for uh, you know kind of got out of his gap and allowed a, allowed the quarterback to get upfield. You know, just a few different things that that happened where. You know, great teams overcome those kind of calls and find ways to shut them shut shut the the offense out anyway. So you know, I think that's that's all true. That still doesn't matter when you're playing a team the the level of of uh, Virginia Tech. You've got to be able to to be able to um, to make up for that more. All right, and this is going to be the final question. Should FSU run more eleven personnel? This one, I'm, it's, uh, this one's from Colby. Uh, should FSU run more 11 personnel? Seems that the offense ran smoother with 11 and the run game operated more effectively. So I think, it, I think this is very matchup dependent. So if you're talking about just having been more successful against, uh, against Virginia Tech, where because Bell was, was out, they did run more 11 personnel, then, yeah, they did have more overall success in the running game, but some of, some of that was, as we talked about, because Virginia Tech is just not good at stopping the run and because their backers were regularly in the wrong gaps. So I, I don't want to make too much of that. Um, you know, I think, I think that's, that's something you have to be careful about, about there. But I do think that this is very matchup dependent, and I think FSU needs to be very conscious of where their advantages lie against different teams. So there are some defenses that you do want to use 11 personnel in just because you feel like they're, you're going to get less high-quality personnel matched up with your guys. So if you feel like they're nickel corner who's going to come in and play against, say, Destin Hill or uh, – Ja'Kai Douglas in the slot can't stick with those guys in the slot, then maybe you play more 11 personnel. 
if you feel like their third linebacker is actually more of a problem, then going 12 personnel is, it makes more sense. If that gives you a better, a better uh, uh, a matchup, then that makes more sense. If you feel like their outside corners are just absolutely elite and are probably going to be able to match up better with your outside receivers than anybody else, then maybe you go 11 personnel a little bit more to open up the field a little bit for some of the inside passing game and all that. But if you feel like you have a major advantage at each outside receiver against their corners and you want to force teams to play more one-to-one high and you know cover three, you know, cover one type looks in order to get those one-on-ones on the outside, then you play more 12. So it really depends on what you're trying to get. So, you know, in my view, you need to do a, a little bit of both. And the other thing is you got to remember, it's not just about personnel, it's about formation. So you can go 12 personnel, get that third backer on the field and still line up in a, in an empty set, you know, put your running back outside or just go, you know, both line up both of your tight ends as slot receivers, essentially. Both of those guys are athletic enough to do that. And I do think we'll see some of that more this year because when you do that, when you spread it out a little bit with those guys wide, those guys are still blocking out there just like they would, but you are simplifying certain things in the box. You're going to get a lighter box. Some of those things in terms of the running game are going to be easier. Difference is, though, that you're going to get a little bit different coverage look, and sometimes that's not going to be as advantageous. You're not going to have as much space for your number one and your number two wide receivers outside. And that's where I think they feel their biggest advantage is coming into the year. I think if you had to ask what their identity was or what it probably should be, it's that you've got two elite wide receivers that are very difficult to cover one-on-one, and you've got to let those guys win and let Jordan Travis distribute to those guys. I think that's what they're, what they're looking for, and they're trying to get bigger plays out of that than anything else. And then, you know, the run game is kind of complementary out of that. So, you know, you, you've got to find ways to create a run game to keep teams honest and make sure that they can't take those guys away. That's the thing. Um, I think with a healthy bell, you need to keep him on the field a little bit more and just continue to let him do his thing. He does need to be a little more consistent catching the ball than he has been this year. And I think if he is a little bit more consistent, some of those, those questions go away a little bit. Think about a couple of the drops that he's had. You're talking about potential touchdowns, you know, p- big plays. And those change games. And there have been a couple drops from the tight ends that have, have been factors. So, yeah, I think this is, this is one where if I'm Mike Norvell, I'm going very matchup-oriented, depending on the personnel of the defense that I'm playing against, and I'm using a variety of different formations, whether compressing in order to get the matchups I want out wide or spreading a little bit so that I can run between the tackles with a little bit lighter box, a variety of different things. I think they need to kind of mix and match a little bit to get the matchups that they want, not just uh, uh, drive to drive, but play in, play out. So answer to that is I don't know that it needs to be uh, more in terms of the of going 11 personnel, going 11 personnel more often, but I do think they need to use their personnel uh, more selectively, play in, play out, to make sure that they get the matchups and that they use the formations that maximize their benefit uh, on a play in, play out basis 
And sometimes that's going to be emptying the box a little bit so they can get some numbers in the running game. Sometimes that's going to be compressing a little bit and letting things stack up in the box so you can get the advantage in the, in, out wide in, in, the, in the passing game. The latter, though, is going to require that Travis and those receivers really be on the same page and that he be really accurate the whole way through. All right, that'll do it for us here. As always, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm Doc Staples. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media, and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.